Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Starting a new series today called I Love to Tell the Story. I hope this uh, old kind of gospel hymn is one that's familiar to you. It's a great example of what we're called to do as God's people to carry the good news of Jesus out into the world. And we're going to talk about a lot of different examples from the Bible, from our contemporary culture of movies that help us learn lessons uh, from stories. And so we're going to dig into several stories, but today's story is going to be on the topic of the uh, power of an underdog, okay? The power of an underdog. And so we're going to talk a little bit about, well, several stories today related to underdog. But before we get into the underdog aspect, I want to talk about this idea of stories for just a minute. The power of a good story. The power of a good story is something hopefully we are all very familiar with. Powerful stories especially have this this innate ability to truly move us. And this is one of the things about stories is throughout all human history, cultures have passed on, you know, uh, things that are virtues that they want to pass from generation to generation. They want to pass on practical life lessons like, hey, the stove is hot. Just trust me. Don't put your hand on it. And that's kind of the, the personal equivalent of what the culture does through stories, where it teaches hard-learned lessons so that you and I don't have to experience the pain of having to have learned that lesson. It also promotes unity as well. And so I like to think of stories doing these three things. Well, number one, it instructs us, and so it helps the stories help us to teach us uh, hard-learned lessons, as I mentioned. They inspire us. Stories help to motivate us, to move us, to do good things, to be good people, to do uh, the things that strive for a higher purpose. Next is integrate. Stories integrate us. They bring us together. They unite us under a common theme, purpose, and, and, they, and they propel us towards a common goal underneath common values. And so they bring people together. And so I have some of the stories which I think have defined our present culture here today, and there's many, many more. Our story, our our culture is totally inundated and filled to the brim with stories that that have framed who we are as people and sort of the ethos or the mentality, the morality of our current culture. And our media certainly has that impact on us today. These are stories that shape our culture. And because stories have such a profound impact on us, people use stories all the time to try and teach you things, to try to sell you things, right? If, just, if you just, how's this for a story? If you just use my hair care product, you'll have a long, luscious mane that you can do this thing with, right? <laughs> so that's a story. Someone is telling you a story to, to frame or shape or instruct you in some way. Now, humans use stories for all kinds of different reasons, but I think we probably learned it from, from the best. I think God loves good stories, too. Jesus especially loves good stories and would use stories all the time. Certainly, the God who created us, mind, body, and soul, knows that people react this way to good stories. We have a, a creative mind. We have uh, 
an idea. We, we, I mean, when we close our eyes at night, we tell ourselves stories in our head. That's how attached to stories we are. We dream. We come up with narratives. Sometimes they don't make sense in our head, but the ones hopefully during the day make a little more sense. But we have this idea that Jesus also loved stories because he knew that if he could connect a story to a hearer, that that hearer could put themselves into that story. Think about it. When you hear a good story, you kind of play a movie in your head. If I were to tell you a story, you would hopefully walk alongside me in that story and create an image or a picture in your mind of the events that were occurring, the characters that were in it, some of the themes, some of the things that might be said. You kind of fill out your own world in some way. And that's what Jesus would do when he would teach. He would often use stories to create a compelling visual. But what Jesus did is he used relatable characters and common situations to reveal profound, universal, timeless truths. So he talks about a farmer, a sower. He talks about a shepherd. He talks about the relationship between father and son. He appeals to the calling of all of God's people to be a good neighbor to other people. And in these, he tells amazing stories like the Good Samaritan, the, the Good Shepherd parable, the parable of the sower, the parable of the prodigal son. And in these stories, these kind of common everyday sort of stories, he reveals profound truth. So profound, in fact, that people would flock from all over to come hear what Jesus had to say, to hear the stories that he used to teach. Because frankly, Maybe you, maybe you agree, maybe you don't. We tend to favor the teachers who can paint an image for us or tell a story to us more than ones who simply stand up and say 2 plus 2 equals 4, 2 plus 3 equals 5. We want something that's a little bit more uh, embodied than that in people who teach us, and Jesus is a great example of that. He could have just stood up and said, God created all things and you should believe in him, but instead he painted a picture for us. Uh, in his words and also through his actions. And so we have a great example from Jesus that stories can help reveal truths. So powerful are Jesus' stories, in fact, that not only do people flock to come hear them in his day and age, but people yet today still flock to hear Jesus' stories. To be moved by his simple imagery of amazingly complex universal truths. 2,000 years later, we still talk about it. Today's story is one that we're going to talk about a little, a little more in depth here. It's the American underdog story. And this is the story of Kurt Warner's rise from obscurity in the football world. In fact, working not even really in football, but at a high V as a, as a, uh, as a shelf stalker uh, and checkout clerk, all the way to becoming the MVP of the NFL and... Super Bowl. Uh, and the story of Kurt Warner is actually one that marks not just his, his rise to success, but is probably even more impactful when you consider the failures and the struggles and the adversity that he overcame to find that. So we'll go ahead and watch this trailer at this time. You wanted to see me, sir. Sit down, Kurt. Thank you, Coach. I prefer a stand. All right. Go ahead, then. Tell me. Tell you what. 
by a team worth $800 million. One of the most complex offenses ever built. Should put you in the driver's seat. You're too old to be a rookie, too green to be a pro. So why in the world would I give you this shot? All my life, I've defined myself through sports. I've always come up empty. Coach, I can win for you. You need to start thinking about life after football, son. We gave you the chance. We're letting you go. I was meant for something. Something more. You think you could be that guy? Yeah, I do. What are you doing here? I wasn't ready for it, but I am now. You defied all odds. I've waited for it. I've bled for it. I know who I am, and I know why I'm here. If you give me a chance... Green went down hard and is not getting up. I will not let you down. Special about you, son. Destiny belongs to the underdogs. You want to prove that? This American underdog story, for those of you who haven't seen it yet. Uh, it is the it is a football movie, but not primarily a football movie. Actually, there's very few scenes that take place on the football field. Most of the movie takes place in his home, in the world, in the struggles that it takes to get him to where he is. And this is sort of the amazing story of Kurt Warner. Is there are a lot of quarterbacks out there who have won, you know, games, been in different, you know, high profile. Uh, Super Bowl wins, who have MVPs, not a lot, but there's enough that they should, you know, tell their story and have it be interesting. But Kurt Warner's is particularly interesting because of what he overcame to get there. And not just what he overcame, but who helped him to get where he, he is. So one of the things that I think is great about Kurt Warner's story is even in the, the highest moments after he won a Super Bowl, he gave thanks to God. He praised the name of Jesus. And even in his lowest moments where he was down and out and had no real prospects in life, he gave thanks to God. And all along the way, he gave thanks to God. And that's one of the amazing things about a story that, that for us shows that it's a story of not just a football, but of faith. That he is trusting in God along the way. Now, he was actually inducted into the Hall of Fame several years later when at the end of his career. And he gave a speech, a 15-minute long speech, about all the people that he wanted to thank and about sort of the mentality that, that got him where he was and to kind of sum up his whole career. Knowing that this was the platform where he would be able to share perhaps the most famous words he, he ever speaks as a person, at the conclusion of a long career and as an inductee into the Hall of Fame. 
And so I want to read these words so that you can get an idea of what it was exactly that Kurt Warner attributed his success to. To the one who without a doubt has left the deepest mark and has become the cornerstone of my life. In the early stages of my career, I had a chance to stand in a podium and say thank you to this person for what they had done for me. Now many felt I was thanking him for orchestrating a Super Bowl win or making my, pa my passes fly straighter or causing my opponents to make more mistakes. But those people had it all wrong. The gesture was my way of acknowledging how fortunate I consider myself for the moments that he had given me, thanking him for the trials which prepared me for this platform and showing me that with him the impossible becomes possible. Now, love it or hate it, that opening scene captured the imagination of the sports world, and the words became the heart of my story. Bringing us to this, the famous last words. His final words were for me. Mine are for him. Thank you, Jesus. And he concluded his Hall of Fame speech there by giving honor and tribute to his Savior, not because of success on the football field. He actually thanks Jesus for the adversity that gave him the ability to stand on the platform and speak to begin with. Now, Kurt Warner would attribute his success not on, not on the football field, or not just on the football field, but in life to God. But even without that success, he would still hopefully give honor to God. Now, this reminds me of another underdog, one we've already talked about a little bit today, and that's David. Now, David is an underdog. You'll notice I have that here in quotes, and I do for a good reason. We talk about the story of David and Goliath, and we like to use that terminology to talk about underdogs. In the sports world or in other competitive ventures, we say it's a David and Goliath story, meaning that whoever is the Goliath is the one who's supposed to win, the one who's greatly favored, the one who without a doubt is expected to be the victor of whatever competitive endeavor is about to occur. But the awesome thing is that even though we consider David to be an underdog, David never considered himself to be an underdog. If you listen to his words from 1 Samuel, there's never a moment of doubt or apprehension whatsoever in David's mind or his words that he was going to defeat Goliath. He wasn't an underdog in his mind. Now, maybe in the mind of all of the Israelite soldiers who were cowering behind, you know, bushes and behind rocks trying to stay out of view of this amazingly uh, intimidating Goliath guy and the armies of the Philistines arrayed before them. Maybe David looked like a bit of an underdog to them. Maybe to King Saul, who was so afraid and terrified of what the Philistines might do to his rule and to his land that he refused to fight. Maybe David seemed like a bit of an underdog. Definitely to Goliath, who says, you come at me with sticks like a dog? David seemed like an underdog, but to David, he wasn't an underdog. Certainly not to God either. David was brave, but why? Why was David so brave in the face of this, this intimidating warrior, this giant of a man named Goliath? Well, he basically tells us why. 
in our reading today from 1 Samuel. He says, Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And so David is brave because, not, not that he knows how to fight, but he, know, he knows who's there with him. He knows who's there to protect him, who's there to rescue him from the evil that stands in front of him. So the question then becomes, who, who was it that actually slew the giant? Who is the one who actually killed Goliath? Well, physically speaking, it was David throwing a stone. But when we think about it, we all know who was really behind this. This isn't David versus Goliath. This is Goliath versus the Almighty God. So who's the underdog in that equation, right? Who's the underdog in this fight? It's certainly not David. And David knows this. David even comes before Goliath, and Goliath mocks him, and this is what David says in response to Goliath. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. This bold proclamation by this young boy David, knowing full well in faith that God has already delivered, for all intents and purposes, the victory to his people Israel, his beloved children. There is no doubt in David's mind who's about to win this fight. No doubt at all that he is about to slay this giant and that God is about to use him to do just that. So, this brings us to a, 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 a kind of hinge point in our thinking here. So we have this story of David and Goliath, this all-too-familiar tale, but then the question becomes, what does the story of David and Goliath teach us? What's it really all about? Well, I, I've put up there three potential sort of ideas for what the purpose of David and Goliath is in our Bible. Number one, maybe it teaches us that God loves an underdog story. God is there for the little guy, right? I mean, that's, that's true. God says the meek shall inherit the earth. However, that's really not the, the main purpose behind this story, why God has it in our Bible. So, no, not that one. How about number two? God will beat the giants in your life, too. After all, he defeated Goliath. So if you put your trust in him, he'll defeat the giants in your life too. You hear this a lot when people try to describe what it is we can glean from this David and Goliath story. Well, that's not true either. I mean, it kind of is true that God will help you to be there and, and help you face the things that you in, contend against in your life, but God is not primarily interested in helping you beat the things that you think are bad in your life. He has bigger plans in mind than just that. So it's not that one either. And the last one is, God defeated Goliath because of David's great faith. 
David obviously had faith that God was going to defeat Goliath, and so God said, hey, I like that. Here, let me help you out a little bit. Yeah, bullseye. No, that's not, not it either. That might be a lesson we want to take away from this, is if I can have the faith of David, God will help me to defeat all the giants in my life as well. So it's not that one either. So if it's not any of those, well, what is the point of the story? Why did God even put it in our Bible? Is it just some interesting kind of fairy tale-like thing that's an interesting story for us? Well, no, it is, it is true. And it's in there for a reason, just like everything in our scripture is in there for a reason. It's not always immediately recognizable for us, but this is why David is in the Bible. David and Goliath, the story of David and Goliath, helps us to see Christ. Because David is what we call a prefigurement of Christ. That's a big word, I know, but prefigurement simply means something in a story that points to something bigger in the story later on. Okay? So in this uh, upcoming VBS this week, we're going to be studying Joseph and the uh, dreams and the uh, famine and all of the things that happened in Joseph's life, the misfortune he endured so that God could elevate him to a position of authority and power to save many people during a famine. This is an example of a prefigurement of Christ. Joseph is like Christ who came into the world to save the sins of the world so that people would, would live. David is the same kind of thing. We just have to open our eyes to see this kind of stuff when we read our Bibles. We have to be open and willing to look for Christ in every story that we read because we acknowledge that it's all about him. And so David is a prefigurement of Jesus Christ in this way. In this story of David, God shows the power that he will put to use to crush the enemies of his beloved children. He shows the lengths that he will go to defeat our enemies. And because of Jesus, the enemy that we have today, the enemies of, that we fear each and every day, the enemies of sin, Satan, and death, because of what Jesus has done, those enemies stand no better chance of defeating us than Goliath did of defeating David on that day. David had absolute and bold confidence he would win the day in God's power. And that's how we can walk around each and every day in the face of certain death, in the face of the consequences of our sins and of the temptations of the devil. We can walk around boldly knowing that the victory is not going to be theirs. It's not going to be sin's victory. It's not going to be death's victory. It's not going to be Satan's victory. The victory belongs to the Lord because he's already won it for us. Jesus has already died on the cross. The power of Christ is already written upon you and me in our baptism. And that emboldens us like it, sh like it emboldened David of old. David is a prefigurement of Christ because he is the one who comes to defeat our enemies for us. He is the one who has put to death death, who has destroyed sin once and for all, who has silenced the devil in all his works and all his ways. And this is what we need to get better at when we pick up our Bibles. When we look at stories in our Bibles 
when we try and relate them, when we try to speak about the culture and how it speaks into our faith, so often we get caught up on the morality of it all. We get caught up on the, the colorful characters and the situations, and we fail to see Jesus at the core of it, at the root of it all. We know that Jesus is what the Bible is really all about, and so why, do, why, why should we open the Bible and expect not to see him in certain stories? He is throughout it all, from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about him. And Jesus even said that about himself, and we see examples of this in his word. In John chapter 5, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus is talking with some people who are a bit frustrated with him and his teaching and his miracles. And they, they are kind of leaning on the, the, the law and leaning on the scriptures to try and refute Jesus. And Jesus comes back at them with these words. <clears throat> he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these words are the very scriptures that testify about me. We, we like to use the Bible for all kinds of things, to teach all kinds of lessons, but Jesus would say to us, any lesson that doesn't have me at the center of it is not what the Bible is all about, because the Bible is all about me. And then later, even though these aren't his words quoted, this is still the actions of Jesus on the road to Emmaus, when he's with the two other followers of Jesus. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scripture concerning himself. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about him. And so any story that we have, any, any image that we try to make, any example we try to pull from the scripture, if it doesn't have him at the center of it, we need to be careful. And so as we march forward into this series, I love to tell the story. Look for Jesus. In these stories from parables, and these stories from the Old Testament, and the epistle writings, even in the lessons we're bringing in from outside sources, look for Jesus. Because at the center of it all is him. He is the true underdog story. Or at least it seemed like that, right? He was born of a virgin. He was born poor, unknown. He uh, kind of lived a... a, a a non-interesting life up until he was an adult, nothing real special about him that we should desire him or be drawn to him. He lived as a servant. He lived as those who associated with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. He died on a cross, a thief's death, a criminal's death. He humbled himself in every possible way so that he appeared as if he were an underdog, but he wasn't really. He wasn't really an underdog. He may have appeared so to all of the earthly powers all around him. Pontius Pilate probably thought he was an underdog, right? Uh, Other people around, the disciples maybe thought he was an underdog. The earthly authorities may have thought that, but we know that Jesus is not an underdog. Because he knew, like David knew, that the victory already belonged to the Lord. And so when we place our confidence and our hope in an underdog, we put our trust and our confidence instead in Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, and yet even in that humility, was the victor for us. Amen.
Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your example given to us in your word, through the story of David, through your word in the parables where you teach us to be a light, where you point us to Christ. Help us to trust in your word. Help us to know your Son and our Savior, and help us to be to reflect his light into a darkened world. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.